From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Negotiations on the new climate accord went down to the wire with delegates working all-night sessions. But the Paris Agreement is ambitious and aims to keep global temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius. The fact is that it is already a great challenge to achieve 2 degrees. There's been a lot of conversation at this meeting about one and a half. I would say most science and technology experts would say that one and a half is close to impossible at this point unless we can find a way to turn emissions negative. Also, indigenous peoples are uniting for climate justice and their rights as part of any deal. The shift has been incredible and it's just going to continue. Everybody needs to get jump in line and be on the right side of history because history is happening and we will win. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Climate Summit in Paris, France, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. I now invite the COP to adopt the decision uh, entitled Paris Agreement, which is in the the document, and I looked out to the room. I see that the, the reaction is positive. I see no objections. The Paris Agreement is adopted. Now that delegates have accepted the Paris Agreement, it's clear that we are in a new era for international climate diplomacy. The logjams that bedeviled international cooperation on global warming for decades have been broken. China and other major greenhouse gas emitters in the developing world will now stand alongside rich developed countries to lower emissions. And the United States is no longer opposing UN climate action. And while the pledges to cut emissions are voluntary, countries will be legally bound to verify the progress that they do make. Secretary of State John Kerry explained why this is so important for the U.S. We spent $126 billion undoing the damage from eight storms of greater intensity that we've ever seen before. That's what we did here in the United States. I was in the Philippines and I went to the place where the typhoon came through and it just was staggering to see the woods splintered all across the mountain. Water that came up above the control tower of the airport. Homes destroyed in massive numbers. And that's the future, folks, unless we tame this monster. So this is a moment. For vulnerable countries, such extreme weather is an existential threat. That fact and many demanding voices helped delegates settle on one of the more ambitious innovations in this compact to call for a limit in atmospheric warming to just 1.5 degrees, down from the goal of 2 degrees Celsius set six years ago. 1.5 to stay alive! 1.5 to stay alive! Of course, greenhouse gases already released to the atmosphere ensure that this is an aspirational goal rather than an achievable one. White House Science Advisor John Holdren. The fact is that it is already a great challenge to achieve two degrees. There's been a lot of conversation at this meeting about one and a half. I would say most science and technology experts would say that one and a half is close to impossible at this point unless and until we can find a way to turn emissions negative. That is just to get to two degrees we need to get emissions to zero in the later part of this century. And if you understand that getting to two requires zero emissions, 
then it becomes clear that getting to one and a half requires negative emissions in the last part of this century. The way you get negative emissions is you have to figure out how to pull large quantities of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequester it in the earth. That's very hard. Still, the presidential science advisor thinks it's a good thing this new figure is in the agreement. You know, I think it's valuable to talk about one and a half, uh, in part so that people understand that two is not safe, it is just the best that governments thought they could manage to achieve. You know, we're going to see rising sea level continuing, uh, even if we could limit to one and a half. We're going to see increased impacts in the form of more torrential downpours, more uh, wildfires, more droughts, more of the most powerful storms. The fact is, we are already seeing dangerous human interference in the climate system at 0.9. The goal originally of avoiding dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, that's gone. We're already experiencing it. The question is not can we avoid dangerous, the question is can we avoid catastrophic. Jennifer Morgan is Global Climate Director for the World Resources Institute and a longtime veteran of these talks. I'm very excited about the results of the Paris Agreement. I think that countries have had a breakthrough here. The tectonic plates have shifted. This is an agreement for all countries in a common framework. It moves away from the division between developed and developing countries, still differentiates and is fair so that the countries with less capability have to do less, but everybody is on the same page to really deal with the climate crisis. Where is science in this deal? Science is at the core of it, which is one of the reasons that I'm so excited. So you have not only the below two degrees target that's been there a long time, but basically a decision or an understanding that that's too dangerous based on science. And then you have a long-term goal for the agreement, which is formulated quite scientifically about a balance between human emissions and human sinks of forests, and that those have to get down to net zero in the second half of the century. If you do the math, the commitments that the countries have put forward here would at best keep the warming from going above, say, 2.7 degrees centigrade, and yet this agreement calls for us aiming for 1.5. How do you bridge that gap? Well, I think in the real world, it means a transformation of our energy systems. It means a shift into renewables. It means more sustainable transportation systems. And the agreement itself has mechanisms in it to help drive that. The long-term goal, hopefully, will get banks to shift their funding away from high-carbon infrastructure into these clean, renewable sets of infrastructure and do much more, actually, than what the agreement even looks like it will do today. And what about adaptation? That is, providing money to folks to, to deal with the fact that the sea levels are rising, that there are more storms, there's more desertification, that infrastructure will have to be changed to deal with these problems. Adaptation was a major priority for Africa and other countries here. They wanted it to have political parity with emission reductions because they're dealing with these impacts now. The agreement has a, has a strong adaptation component, a long-term goal to build resilience 
in communities and different ecosystems. It requires adaptation planning for all countries. It has a stock take every five years to see how countries are doing on this adaptation, how much support is being provided, and also a balance on the funding will go between mitigation and adaptation. So I think it's a, a pretty robust adaptation approach here. So there are some new language in this I hadn't seen before. We're talking about loss and damage for the first time. What's that all about? Well, there are impacts happening now around the world, and some of them are going to continue and cause damages, irreplaceable damages, permanent damages. And the poorest countries and the most vulnerable countries wanted some assurances and mechanisms and uh, insurance mechanisms to work with them to deal with these long onslaught damages. And so that's a new approach. It's, it's an unfortunate one because it basically means that the impacts are happening so fast that you can't adapt to everything. So you also need to be thinking about these permanent damages. How do you feel about fairness? How do you feel about equity? Are the nations of the world leaving Paris uh, feeling that there's a fair deal here? In my conversations with the small islands, with the least developed countries, my sense is that they think that it is a good step towards fairness, that the provisions here for loss and damage, for adaptation, for finance, starts to get us there. And the inclusion of the 1.5 degree temperature goal, in a way, keeps them still in existence. It's clear that there's so much more to do for them and in, or, you know, in order for this to be fair. But I think it's a good, it's a good shift. It's a good start. Uh, and um, we just need to keep at it. How did this agreement come together? This has been very difficult to do. We saw Copenhagen go up in smoke. We saw the Hague, the deal in The Hague go up in smoke. Kyoto was just sort of gaveled through uh, with a fair amount of objection. How was this uh, meeting of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change able to reach an agreement here in Paris that really does have everyone engaged? There were so many different factors, but I think a number particularly come to mind. First was the commitment of leaders. President Obama himself spent tremendous time and energy engaging with other heads of state, working with China, working with Chancellor Merkel, uh, Prime Minister Modi from India. That was quite different. But the other thing that just has struck me throughout this whole year is the French. The presidency of these cops makes a big difference. And the French di diplomatic approach was sophisticated. It was uh, caring. It built trust. Uh, and at the end, I think, it has been the best-run cop I've ever been to. A number of folks from what you might call civil society aren't so pleased with this. What's your response? Well, I think it's clear that this is one piece that we are in a transformation that is going to take time and, and that it means that tomorrow we have to get up and keep going. We have to keep going and, and shifting away from dirty fossil fuels in building out renewable energy. But I think Paris has accelerated that pace of that shift. And I think that's a good contribution to the fight against climate change. There's no mention uh, in this agreement about, as some would say, keeping fossil fuels in the ground. 
uh, and there's some concern by folks in civil society about that. Your response? If you want to get to net zero by the second half of this century, you have to leave a lot of fossil fuels in the ground. Jennifer Morgan is Global Climate Director for the World Resources Institute. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Maybe I should say congratulations. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Climate justice activists took to the streets again as the Paris Agreement came together. More than 10,000 people gathered near the iconic Arc de Triomphe in downtown Paris to stretch a giant red banner symbolizing a red line that they say we cannot cross if we are to maintain a just and livable planet. They argue the Paris Agreement does not go far enough, and the world needs to totally decarbonize its economy as quickly as possible and keep fossil fuels in the ground. Kumi Naidu, executive director of Greenpeace International, says this kind of challenge is not new. If history teaches us anything, when humanity has faced a major challenge or a major injustice, Those struggles only move forward when decent men and women stood up and said, enough is enough and no more. We prepare to put our lives on the line. We prepare to go to prison if necessary. And given that many of the most powerful leaders on our planet seem to be all having a similar health problem, which is they all sadly have a problem with hearing uh, the appeals of their citizens, We know that civil disobedience is something that gets them to sit up and take notice. Greenpeace International Executive Director, Kumi Naidu. And you'll find more at our website, LOE.org. Indigenous peoples from around the world had a strong presence at COP21, with press conferences, panels, and protests demanding that indigenous rights be protected in any climate agreement. One unique display of indigenous unity and solidarity took place nowhere near the conference center where the talks were held. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has our story. On a quiet sunny morning in the heart of Paris, indigenous activists descended on the Bassin de la Villette, an artificial lake connected to the city's canal system. About 50 people stood on a green footbridge above the water, draping banners over the side that read, Indigenous peoples defending Mother Earth and defend the sacred, protect the water. A green canoe led a flotilla of kayaks across the lake and under the bridge. Men beat drums from the bows of canoes, one blew on a horn, and the sounds floated out across the placid water. The term kayaktivist was coined this summer when protesters in kayaks blocked a shell oil rig heading to the Arctic from Seattle. Some of those activists were from the Lummi Nation in Washington State, and there were Lummi paddlers in the water in Paris as well.
But it wasn't just the Lummi who traveled great distances to be here. Indigenous activists came to Paris from New Zealand, the Amazon, and the Arctic. It's key that we are here as indigenous peoples because we are the frontline communities. Our communities are the first ones to feel the effects of climate change. Dallas Goldtooth is an organizer with the Indigenous Environmental Network in the United States. And he says that indigenous people are nature's best stewards, and they deserve an integral place in any climate deal. People have come to Paris to, to discuss the solutions to climate change, not aware that the solutions to climate change are right here. When the kayaks reached the shore, indigenous leaders in traditional clothes crammed into the hull of a canal barge, where they spoke about the impacts of climate change on their homes and the need for native peoples to stand together against fossil fuel extraction. The Sariaku people have been fighting oil drilling in the rainforests of Ecuador. Sariaku leader Felix Santi presented a proposal he called the Living Forest, demanding recognition of their territory as sacred land, protected from oil, mineral, and timber extraction. And this proposal respects all the living beings and helps achieve the balance of the planet and Mother Earth. Indigenous peoples uh, live with this wisdom, live in harmony with these living beings, and we're here to protect the lagoons and the water and the trees and the mountains. Faith Gemmel wants to protect her sacred land, too. She's a native Alaskan organizer with red oil, resisting environmental destruction on indigenous lands. We're calling for a full phase out of fossil fuel development. Yes. And a moratorium. Keep it in the ground. Yes. No more new fossil fuel development. Faith and her people celebrated a victory earlier this year when Shell abandoned its plans to drill offshore in the Arctic. But immediately following that, the state and our congressional representatives called for drilling in the last 5% of America's only Arctic coast, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is sacred to my people. Faith says that indigenous people are doubly impacted by fossil fuels. The extraction often occurs on their land, and then they experience the worst effects of climate change. Climate change directly undermines our traditional livelihood and our ability to access our foods. The ground we walk on is literally melting beneath us. Whole communities are at threat of being climate refugees as they are being forced to relocate. Here in Europe, indigenous peoples of the north face similar challenges. Yanni Stephenson is Sami. So the Sami people are the indigenous peoples of the north, colonized by Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. Our traditional livelihood is uh, nomadic with following the reindeer's migration patterns. Climate change has brought new species and strange weather to northern Europe, and it's hindering the herder's ability to follow the reindeer. My friend, he, he couldn't gather the herd because of the lakes are not freezing and the rivers are still open. He can't get over to the, to the herd and the herd can't come to him. The Sami spend a lot of time out on the frozen lakes, and Yanni says the changing climate makes it difficult for them to predict how solid the ice will be at any given time. During the, the spring, uh, I hate when the phone rings, for example, because I always think it's bad news, somebody gone through the ice. Yanni told her story many times here in Paris, but she says she didn't feel like people inside the UN summit really heard her call to protect her people. When you're young, you, you think that grown-up peoples, they're the ones to protect you, and they are always right, and they have all the answers, and they will act rightly upon them. 
But when you notice that they do not want the best for you, uh, and they have all of this information and not acting upon them, it makes you very angry. Indigenous activists in Paris want ambitious efforts to tackle global warming, but they're concerned that some projects designed to rein in carbon pollution are being implemented without their permission and violate their rights and undermine their livelihoods. The UN program RED, Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation, is intended to harness the carbon-sucking power of trees in the fight against climate change. But Berenice Sanchez, a food expert from Mexico, says that too often projects ignore the important role indigenous peoples play as stewards of the forest. She's particularly concerned that some carbon sequestration projects are making it impossible for her people to live as they have for generations. The implementation plans aren't respecting traditional knowledge or the methods people have used to care for these places. In Oaxaca, for example, what traditionally has been done is people harvest firewood to use in their homes. This is an activity that you can't do anymore. It's not our forest anymore. Back at the water, a sign on the bridge reads No Red in bright crimson paint. Casey Camp Oranek of the Ponca Nation in Oklahoma says you can't put a dollar figure on a forest. We do not buy and sell the air. We do not buy and sell the water. We do not buy and sell the earth. We do not buy and sell the fire. Indigenous activists lobbied hard in Paris for a strict requirement that countries protect the rights of indigenous people in any effort to address climate change. But as of recording this, that language was removed from the binding text. You know, the, the nations of the world are, are, are concerned about legal liabilities with, with if, they acknowledge, if they're held accountable to recognize the rights of indigenous peoples. And so they would rather cut that out than put, get, than put that in. Dallas Goldtooth says they will keep pushing for climate solutions that protect indigenous ways of life. We're on the edge here. We're on the brink of extinction. And, and it's not, it doesn't matter whether you're indigenous or not indigenous. We all stand on common ground, literally. And we need to protect it at all costs. The only way that we can keep the temperature from rising is to keep fossil fuels in the ground. But that wasn't on the table in Paris. The final climate deal won't satisfy all the activists on the water. But Sherry Foytlin, a Cherokee Dene writer from Louisiana, says her spirits are still high. You know what the best part about this is, all of this is, is just seeing these amazing people stand up and say that they're going to take back their world. Sherry says that indigenous people from across the globe paddling together through the center of Paris sends a powerful message that the movement for climate justice is growing. The, the shift has been incredible and it's just going to continue. Everybody needs to get jump in line and be on the right side of history because it, history is happening and we will win. For Living on Earth, this is Emmett Fitzgerald in Paris. Whatever the indigenous communities may want for their forests, we cannot survive without the world's trees. How to save and rebuild tropical forests prompted a lot of discussion here at COP21. The Amazon alone has enough forest carbon to equal more than a decade of present fossil fuel emissions, and Central Africa and Southeast Asia are nearly as carbon rich. New analysis shows that the tropics could theoretically save a whopping four to six gigatons of carbon a year if deforestation is halted and the trees are allowed to grow back, says Richard Houghton of the Woods Hole Research Center. That would be like cutting a third of the world's annual industrial CO2 emissions. Which is enough to stabilize the concentration of carbon dioxide now and keep it stable as we come off of fossil fuels. 
But to make such sharp carbon cuts, Houghton says, the world would need to stop cutting virgin forests, restore them, and at the same time drastically reduce the logging of plantation trees used for pulp and paper. He also says small farmers who repeatedly slash and burn small areas of forest to enhance crop production would have to rethink their methods. The idea of saving tropical forests to buy time for humanity to convert from fossil fuels led to the concept known as RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. It's been around for a decade and got more encouragement at COP21. But making this forest protection concept a reality has been tough, to say the least, as Mariano Shinamo of the Institute for Conservation and Sustainable Development of the Amazon noted at a COP21 side event. The first main challenge is to reduce deforestation at the same time they promote social and economic development. As we know, the main driver of deforestation in most of these regions come from the need for economic development, from agriculture, cattle ranching, and other mining and illegal logging. And therefore, to substitute these activities that generate revenues for another land use activity, we need investments, we need funds, we need financial support. And this is what we need now, that this is what is not in place on the needed scale so far. At COP13 in 2007 in Bali, RED proponents won strong support for financing those needed investments out of the global carbon markets. Countries that reduced emissions by saving forests would have been paid for that performance with credits exchangeable for cash. Companies wanting to offset their carbon pollution could buy those RED credits. But two years later, when COP15 in Copenhagen failed to reach a broad mandatory international cap-and-trade agreement, RED's future became uncertain. Coming out of that sort of disappointment in Copenhagen in 2009, that left space for sort of the voluntary markets to start to move forward. The whole generation of carbon cowboys came about, that is sort of speculators that someday carbon from forests and from reductions in deforestation would take on some value. That's Dan Nepstad, a tropical biologist and red expert who heads the Earth Innovation Institute in San Francisco. Without international standards and with no clear regulations, he says a good concept at times became a bad practice. A lot of people went around signing off contracts with getting indigenous people to sign off contracts, sort of giving away their forests in a way. That was a phase of red that continues at some level that got a lot of bad press and should have gotten a lot of bad press. I think that is unfortunate. I think that Chiapas, for example, it's been assumed that somehow California is putting money into a project that's taking land away from the Lacandon Maya indigenous group, and it's simply not true. So there's also a lot of misinformation out there. But there have been some good news stories based on bilateral deals, even though a broad multinational system has yet to be implemented. For instance, Brazil has avoided some 4 billion tons of carbon emissions since RED came along. In recognition, Norway has given Brazil more than $130 million to cover some of the costs of implementing RED, though it's unclear how much of that has trickled down to small farming and tribal communities. Now, here in Paris, the notion of tradable carbon offsets for RED performance was mostly not on the table. Brazil, in particular, objects to the idea that RED credits could help dirty industries continue carbon pollution. Instead, COP21 promoted bilateral deals between nations and even provinces as new workable red mechanisms that mesh with the diverse INDC system of carbon reduction pledges. 
About 20% of the world's tropical forests are in indigenous territories, and many of these lands have changed little in hundreds, if not thousands of years, even though the communities there are now developing and farming. But indigenous people seldom hold title to those lands that mainstream courts recognize, and the red discussion has brought about some welcome clarity. Again, Dan Nepstad. It was in the context of the development of the red program in Indonesia that the Constitutional Court decided that customary land rights, that is the rights of Dayak communities, other ethnic groups that have been there forever but have never been formally recognized because it's government land, need to be ceded back to those communities. That is a mind-boggling decision by the court. It has to be implemented, and that's a big step, but the context for that was the red debate. And how could we get benefits to people who don't have clear claims to their land? Global indigenous leaders say there are other basic elements beyond land rights that their communities need to participate in red, and those include free, prior, informed consent and financing for land protection. They also say they need an end to the criminalization of human rights activism and recognition of the contribution of indigenous peoples in the fight against climate change. I caught up with Abdan Nababan of Indonesia, Secretary General of Indigenous Peoples Alliance of the Archipelago, for his assessment. I think nothing wrong with red. If the, the implementations put the indigenous people's right as preconditions, you know, we have the same goals with LEDD+, to reduce deforestation and forest degradation. But if they put that in the market scenario, if they put red in the hand of corporations, the red plus will colonize our territory. For a moment, let's pretend we're in the forest, looking around at the various trees and other plants. What would we see? Uh, now, there is mixed situations in our forest in my homeland. You can see the very good forest with the agroforest systems in our land. But at the same time, there is a new industrial forestry came to our land that converted this agroforestry systems for pulp and paper. So we, now we see the two. We see how the indigenous keep the forest, but also we will see how the system become threatened by the industrial timber estate. I hope that the governments and also the academics work to produce the knowledge systems that this monoculture systems will destroy our systems, indigenous systems. The fire is burning now in Indonesia. Why are they a sign that indigenous rights are not being respected? Because now most of our forests already granted to the corporations and they want to dry the rainforest and also the peatlands to become a plantations for oil palm. That's why there is an opposition for indigenous people's right from the extractive industry. What will it take to wake up the world to the solution to forest loss and degradation? In other words, recognition of indigenous rights. I think the solutions for right now is to bring all kind of low-carbon lifestyle to be in the front line of this fight. And indigenous peoples is one of that. Yeah, of course, not only indigenous peoples. Yeah, also local communities that's already developed their own systems to be more 
organic, for example, so organic farming and, and so on. I think that's, that will be the, the solutions for what we are facing right now that we call climate change. And by the way, if you're not familiar with Abdan Nababan's term of agroforestry, it mixes trees and shrubs with crops and pasture to make food production more diverse, more sustainable, and even more profitable, and can eliminate the need to cut down many trees. As the delegation's headed home from Paris, it's still uncertain whether this time the money will truly flow to keep and restore this resource that can help control global warming, tropical forests, the lungs of our planet. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. Coming up, a voice from the heart of an endangered Pacific island. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood at the Climate Summit in Paris. In the crucial lead-up to these talks, countries were asked to prepare emission-cutting plans, or INDCs, and that focused negotiations much earlier than in previous rounds. The question now becomes, how do countries actually hit the targets they have set, which will only ratchet up in the coming years? One answer is a sort of bottom-up approach with individual cities, states, and provinces making the changes necessary to help their nations meet the goals and even reach across international borders. A good example of this is Canada. Newly elected Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came to Paris to say that Canada is now backing federal and provincial climate protection after a decade under conservative leader Stephen Harper, who pulled out of the Kyoto Accord and championed oil sands development. A lot of you may have noticed that over the past 10 years or so, Canada has been perhaps less enthusiastic than some about addressing climate change and its impacts. But even though at the federal level we haven't necessarily been strong and active, at the subnational level, our provinces have stepped up. We have four different provinces that represent about 86% of the Canadian economy that have actually moved towards putting a price on carbon. Trudeau pointed to renewable energy development and energy efficiency as engines of growth. We're now in a, in a race to see who can be most efficient, who can create the best technologies for renewable energies, for moving forward in a way that understands that there is no longer a choice to be made between what's good for the economy and what's good for the environment. And a key stimulant of green energy development, Trudeau says, is putting a price on carbon, which is well underway in several Canadian provinces. Quebec has been a leading Canadian province on carbon pricing, working with other provinces and even U.S. states. To explain how this all works, we turn to David Hertel, the Minister of Sustainable Development 
the environment, and the fight against climate change for the province of Quebec. So we've set up a carbon market, which we successfully linked to the one set up in California, creating the largest carbon market in North America. And we've been very successful at raising revenues, first of all. The carbon market has allowed us to raise close to a billion dollars in revenues on our way to our target of $3 billion by 2020. And that money is entirely reinvested in Quebec's Green Fund, which funds different adaptation and mitigation measures. For example, public transit, electrification of transportation, investment in renewable energy, energy efficiency, research also in climate change impacts in Quebec, and also the development of the whole clean tech sector. So it's important to know that while we're fighting climate change with the carbon market, because our carbon market is directly linked with our emissions reduction targets, this carbon market allows us to achieve those reductions, but also is a tool for economic development to transition out of a fossil fuel-based economy to a cleaner economy. Without getting into too much detail, how does this work? If I'm in Quebec, how am I being charged the price of the carbon I use? If you emit, let's say you're the CEO of a major industrial company which emits more than 25,000 tons of CO2 per year, you are automatically by law integrated into the carbon market. And so if you want to continue to operate anything over 25,000 tons, you have to acquire, you have to buy carbon credits. And how much are those? The last auction, the price was set ultimately at $17 Canadian a ton, which is about $12, $13 US. And what's very interesting is that the price has been progressing. It started in 2013, it's closer to $10 Canadian. So now it's actually progressing. And that's the basis of a successful carbon market because it creates the incentive for the private sector to change their ways. Because if a company buys carbon credits and then invests in cleaner technologies, then it can sell the unused credits on the open market and actually make money. And also, it doesn't have to buy as many credits as it would have normally if it had continued on the old way of doing business. So how does your subnational system, that is the provincial system, mesh with the others? You have a deal with California, but at the same time, there's a tax in British Columbia. I believe Manitoba is getting involved in this. Ontario, I believe, is also getting involved in this. And I imagine that the systems and the numbers aren't all exactly the same. How do you put that together? Well, we work at it, quite honestly. I mean, with California, it took several years, but we were able to harmonize our regulations and have a completely integrated system, which works. And now Ontario has indicated not only that it wants to set up its own carbon market, but it wants to link up with the Quebec-California model. So it's going to be one whole integrated system. Same thing with Manitoba. So we're talking about one block. The key here is that we first need all to establish a price on carbon to effectively fight climate change. I mean, it's a, we're here at the COP. I think it's something that enjoys a broad consensus. We need to establish a price on carbon. And what is interesting is that now, while maybe five, six, ten years ago, nobody was talking about carbon pricing in Canada, now you have five provinces looking at carbon pricing, representing over 80% of its population. So we're moving in the right direction, but I think also provinces have to put in place the right system for their economies and for their population, for their particularities. And we can work together from that basis. You've looked over the border to the U.S. and California. What about the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative on the east coast of the United States? 
So obviously that's a very interesting market as well. Nine U.S. states all in the Northeast, including all the four border states with Quebec. We've had very interesting exchanges. Uh, Premier Couillard has met several times with uh, Governor Shumlin of Vermont. We're very excited by Governor Cuomo of New York State. A recent announcement, I think it was in October, when he announced his intent of broadening the scope of Reggie and maybe eventually even looking. He specifically mentioned the Quebec, California market and looking if there wouldn't be any possibilities of linking up or collaborating. And there have been exchanges between WCI, which is the entity which governs the Quebec, California market, and Reggie to see if there could be some preliminary ways of aligning both markets. So that's very exciting uh, news as well. Same thing on the West Coast. Washington State and Oregon have taken significant steps and are interested in looking at establishing uh, carbon pricing and eventually maybe carbon markets that could be linked with the Quebec, California model. Mexico has also showed interest. There was an MOU that was signed by Premier of Quebec Couillard with the Mexican president on October 12th of this year, which says specifically that both Quebec and California will explore with Mexico the possibility of linking Mexico's carbon market, which should be online by 2017, with the Quebec California model. So as you can see, there's a lot of momentum, there's a lot of things going on in the right direction. So uh, it's pretty exciting times right now. What advice would you give to the United States based on your experience with carbon trading? People tend to say, okay, well, right now, unlikely a Republican Congress is going to do this, but times do change, as you found yourself in Quebec. So how would you advise the United States to proceed with dealing with the price of carbon, if you were asked? Well, uh, that's a pretty tall order. I think what we need to look at, and if I can speak to the Canadian experience, I think if you look at the international level, so at the state and local level, that's where the main jurisdictions are, the main powers are to affect real change. And we've seen it in Canada. It's the provinces, it's the territories, and the cities that have forced the real change and put in place the real measures that we see now are working. So you don't necessarily have to wait for your national government to move. There are some who criticize carbon pricing as leaving the door open to burning more carbon. They say we should just shut it off. What do you say in response to those criticisms? That's not been our experience, quite the contrary. The setting up of a cap and trade system in Quebec has helped us effectively reduce our emissions and has effectively also helped business transition out of fossil fuel-based technologies and develop new technologies. They factored in the cost and they see that there's actually opportunities for growth. Our economy now is positioning itself to be a leader in exporting these new technologies around the world. David Ertel yeah. is the Minister of Sustainable Development, the Environment and the Fight Against Climate Change of Quebec. Thank you so much for taking Thank the time you. with me today. Great to speak with you. Thank you so much. And by the way, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has said that he would like to work with the Canadian provinces and California to develop a broad North American carbon market using cap and trade. And for New York State to go beyond exchanging credits related to Reggie, it would have to create a state or regional cap and trade system itself. For observers, the flurry of high-level negotiations and proposals and agreements and pledges from business and individual nations were overwhelming.
But there were alternative moments of calm. Artists converged on Paris as well to express their climate truths and try to reach the 40,000 people gathered at the conference center and the millions of Parisians. Among them were some writers, and we caught up with one from the Marshall Islands, who performed her poem, Tell Them, and talked about her home. My name is Kathy Jedengel-Kutjinor. I'm from the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands is in the northern Pacific Ocean, and it's in an area called Micronesia. It's a small country. It's not very developed. You know, there's just one road, like just one main road running through the entire island. There's no traffic lights. There's no malls. There's no Burger King, McDonald's. None of that happens there. It's very, very flat. There's no mountains at all. It's just ocean all around you, which I've heard people say that kind of scares them. It freaks them out when they're first there. Like everywhere you turn, you see the ocean. And there's coconut trees. You know, some parts are really lush and beautiful. Some parts are not. Our people are, we're known to be canoe navigators. We're also known to be really fine mat weavers. And there's just kids everywhere. You just see kids running around all over the place. Basically, Marshall Islands is only one meter above sea level. And so we're extremely vulnerable to the rising sea level. We have these things called like sea walls, which are walls that we build to keep the ocean out of our homes. And recently, we've been having multiple floodings just within this year alone. We've had four breaches. Water being so high that it would crash into our homes destroy, completely obliterate and destroy homes, like completely level it out. I was out oh, two weekends ago, you know, running errands, and I saw these women and children fundraising with a car wash and barbecue plates. And so I went to buy a barbecue plate. And I said, what are you fundraising for? And the woman said, you know, our seawalls are broken. And I was like, oh, like from the recent flooding? And they said, yeah, just the recent one. It broke all of our seawalls. So it was like a whole community of houses whose seawalls were broken. And they sent me all of these photos, you know, of the these just completely messed up seawalls, parts of their houses just like totally messed up. And you know, they're not rich, these people. They're having to figure out ways to fix their seawalls, you know, raise funds. Our minimum wage is $2 an hour. And so we're already struggling as it is as a people, you know, as a country. But then we have climate change on top of this, and it just exacerbates the situation. I'm a poet and a performer. I'm actually here with the Global Call for Climate Action. GCCA brought me and four other poets out here for the Spoken Word for the World project to raise awareness on various issues on climate change. Our poetry is meant to bring the humanity back into the issues that we're discussing. Tell them. I prepared the package for my friends in the States. First, the dangling earrings, woven into half-moons, black pearls glinting like an eye in a storm of tight spirals. Second, the baskets, sturdy, also woven, brown cowrie shell shiny, intricate mandalas shaped by calloused fingers. Inside the basket, I write a message. Wear these earrings to parties, to classes and meetings, to the corner store, the grocery store, or while riding the bus. Store jewelry, incense, copper coins, and curling letters like this one, in this basket. And when others ask you where you got this, you tell them they're from the Marshall Islands. Show them where it is on a map. Tell them we are a proud people toasted dark brown as the carved ribs of a tree stump. Tell them we are descendants of the finest navigators in the world. Tell them our islands were dropped from a basket carried by a giant. 
Tell them we are the hollow hulls of canoes as fast as the wind slicing through the Pacific Sea. We are wood shavings and drying pandanus leaves and sticky at gamims. Tell them we are sweet harmonies of mothers, aunties, sisters, songs late into night. Tell them we are whispered prayers, the breath of God, a crown of fuchsia flowers encircling Auntie Mary's white sea foam hair. Tell them we are styrofoam cups of Kool-Aid red, waiting patiently for the ilomage. We are papaya golden sunsets bleeding into a glittering open sea. We are skies uncluttered, majestic and sweeping in their landscape. Tell them we are dusty rubber slippers swiped from concrete doorsteps. We are the ripped seams and the broken door handles of taxis. We are the sweaty handshaking and other sweaty hand in heat. Tell them we are days and nights hotter than anything you can imagine. Tell them we are little girls with braids cartwheeling beneath the rain. Tell them we are shards of broken beer bottles burrowed beneath fine white sand. We are children flinging like rubber bands across a road clogged with chugging cars. Tell them we only have one road. And after all this, you tell them about the water. Tell them how you have seen it rising, flooding across our cemeteries, gushing over our seawalls, and crashing against our homes. Tell them what it's like to see the entire ocean level with the land. Tell them we are afraid. Tell them we don't know of the politics or the science, but we see what's in our own backyard. Tell them some of us are old fishermen who believe that God made us a promise. Tell them some of us are a little bit more skeptical. But most importantly, you tell them that we don't want to leave, that we've never wanted to leave, and that we are nothing without our islands. Marshall Islands poet Kathy Jitnell Kijiner with her poem, Tell Them. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you with support from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, Amber Rodriguez, and Jennifer Marquis. Thanks this week to Jennifer Stevens Kerwood. Jake Rigo engineered our show with help from Noel Flatt. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI Public Radio International.